1.23 p.m., a crowded subway train starts its run from Pelham Station in the Bronx. 1.45 p.m., four desperate, heavily armed men seize control of the train. Open the door or I'll blow your head off. Taking 17 people as hostages. Your attention, please. Now then, you'll all remain seated. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. I do hope I have made myself understood. 2.13 p.m. The city of New York is given one hour to come up with a million-dollar ransom. You're out of your skull. No all units stand by on the double. What's up, Z? A train's been hijacked. Millions have read it. Now you can live it. The taking of Pelham. One, two, three. Everybody. Welcome to another edition of uh, what, what I like to call an intermittent podcast at this point. So, you know, when the, when the mood hits us, uh, we'll right. come back to you with a, another uh, conversation about a movie that we saw, or at least one of us saw in the 70s. Or I did not see this in the 70s. No, but you saw this. It's almost more exciting I, it's one of those things I'm so jealous, you know, of people who get to see a movie later in life for the first time and experience that. And, and this is one of the great theater movies. This is one of the best movies, one of the best theater experiences I've ever had seeing a movie. And that was at the Music Box? It was at the Music Box. 
and it was uh, during a series of uh, noir, noir films in the 70s. So they were, they were saying that this is a noir film, and I don't know that it is. Um, I just saw another list uh, that somebody posted today of 70s neo they also call it neo noir right i mean exactly. and that is such a broad brush the way people use it i mean it's unbelievable what gets dumped into that category just because you want people to see good movies and you can't well, figure like out how else to blue collar it. was in that right. series thunderbolt and lightfoot uh another walter Matthau movie which actually was closer to noir where he um La- laughing policeman no it was something else it was Charlie really Varick? good. Yeah. yeah, 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 Charlie Varick. Yeah, that is a great one. But I would say, does it get any better than this? I, I don't know. I don't know that it does. And what kind of movie is it? I, I, that's the thing. What kind of movie is this other than a great movie? Like, what kind of movie is Citizen Kane other right. than a great movie? Right, because it's tempting to label it. It's tempting to say it's a heist it's a heist movie, and there's a heist mm. in it, but it's not really, you're not focused for the most part on the details of the heist the way you are with like the Anderson tapes or like those, um, you know, Ocean's Eleven movies. The, 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 right. the, the mechanics of the heist, I think, are, while they're really interesting and it's a, a cool, clever, you know, they're, the linchpin of, their, of this whole heist is this, them coming up with this way to, fool people cheat the system and that's cool but that i don't think it's i don't think there's enough emphasis on the mechanics of the heist to call this a heist picture it's a right i guess it's a thriller it's a suspense film but it's also it's too comedic for that yeah Yeah. it's a it's a social satire i guess i mean it's it's also sort of just like i mean it's almost you know for all the for all the nitpicking that can probably be, be done with this movie I never find myself having the. I lived in New York in the seventies, and I know I was reading something today where I'm sorry, we're talking about taking a Pelham one two three from nineteen seventy four, directed by Joseph Sargent. One of the great one two three, not one two three. Oh, okay. So it's O N E T W O T H R E E, right? Not one two three, because everywhere I look on on the internet, it says O N E. And then the remake is one, two, three. You're saying that? The, you're saying the that you spell out the words rather than put the numerical things in. Is that what you're asking We're, me? That's what I'm asking. Whether it's actual numbers in the title or text, right? Because if you look on Wikipedia, the that's 2009 version has the numbers. I was hoping we would never talk one. about the 2009 version. <laughs> you know, there's two okay, remakes. Forget of this I movie. brought it up. Okay. There's a TV movie version of this too. Did you know that? No. What year Which, did that come out? Uh, I think it's in the 90s, and I think it's got Edward James almost, but I can't remember which. All character right, I he almost plays. saw it. <laughs> uh, you're right. So I'm looking at the poster. That appeared in the New York Times the day it opened, and it's taking a Pelham O N E T W O T H R E. Maybe that was Tony Scott's main uh, uh, twist on the on the source material. Yeah. I'm going to give it my own twist. We're going to call it one, two, three. Have you seen that movie? I tried 
I got about halfway through and I was like, wow, this is shit. Yeah. I'm never a Tony Scott fan. Never, ever, 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 ever. I'm with you. And it's weird how many film people I'm surrounded by who are totally into Tony Scott and think Unstoppable is like a masterpiece. And I'm like, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Taking a Pelham 123, I, uh, I have to say that I don't think I ever sat down and really understood what the 123 stands for until today. Okay, go. Do you know what it I is? I mean, were, were you going to say that this, this movie is pretty good with locations, right? Well, I was saying, right, <laughs> you know, for, for all of its flaws, theoretically technical, like things that aren't act, that wouldn't actually be that way, I guess the number one be, thing that I read today, and I was like, oh, I never even thought of that, is that the, this is a graffitiless subway car uh, and train, uh. which would not have been the case in 73 or 74. Um, but, the, but for me, the graffiti is implied. Like there's, there's nothing about this movie that makes me feel like, Ooh, they cleaned up New York for this. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I totally buy that that's an actual train that they, that everything is shot on location, which basically it was, I mean, yeah. you know, there's, they didn't build a subway car. They used one, um, you know, on some, I don't know, we're in a warehouse. No, Justine's thing. pretty rough on stuff like that and she was like well that's all that's all they're in all the places that they're saying that they actually are which is totally with my memory of watching the tony scott one drove me crazy for that one because Mm. that's full of all kinds of nonsense about wait there how are they here when they were just there that that film has no sense of geography when it comes to new york city no respect no respect and it also i mean you know, it's weird because it's a, you know, it's one of these things. And were you telling me that you didn't want to watch this movie for a while because you thought it was going to be like The Incident, which you didn't, don't like? No, I thought it was The Incident. I thought oh, The Incident was taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Because I saw like about a half an hour of it late night on TV once. And I was like, oh, well, this is taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. And I never finished it. And I was like, yeah, I didn't like it too much. I, I don't need to finish it. And then when I saw it, I was like, what was I thinking? I almost missed out. But it does that, th- you know, it's it's like, okay, it's this one subway car which happens to have this cross-section of humanity and all these sort right. of character types. But again, I buy it all. I'm like, no, that is, that is th- those are the people you would find on a typical subway car. You know, right, all it's, of they're types. not hammering it. They're not hammering you over the head with it either. It's not, they're, they're people. They're not... They don't come off as archetypes. Right. It's not... And, and I don't think another one of these movies has ever pulled it off as smoothly as they do. You know, I'm thinking about Speed, where they have that bus full of characters. And you got What's-His-Name from Ferris Bueller, who's just such an obnoxious type. And you're just like... Alan Ruck. Okay, yeah, Alan Ruck. And these are actors doing actorly things. And they're like, you have to be this and you have to be that. This one, yes, there's this uh, old Jewish guy, and he's clearly the old Jewish guy. And there's the young black guy who's like sort of a pimp, maybe, but at least you know looks like one. Right. Uh, there's the hooker, and then there's the Spanish-speaking people. And but you're right, they're all people, and n- none of those, none of those archetypes that they represent are hammered home. And they're, you're not, they're not. They use them. They use those things to the film's advantage from time to time. Hector Elizondo's character, who is, you know, the creepiest of all the creeps, right? And the and the guy you hate the most, 
I mean, so they use his racism and his misogyny, you know, they they use those characters to make points about what a piece of shit Hector Elizondo is in this movie. Right, right. But we've talked about this before, and, and this movie came out the same year as Blazing Saddles, and it seemed mm-hmm. like those two movies have a comfort with talking about racism that we don't have anymore. And it, it, it really, uh, it's kind of sad. It's not kind of sad. It's really sad. Like we've gone backwards. And but right. this this movie seems to me to be a high water mark of like, all right, we are different. Can we discuss it? You know, and we just can't seem to do that anymore. Yes, and at the same time, it goes hand in hand with the movie we talked about last time, uh, Soil and Green, and and even Omega Man to a, a lesser extent, where there are uh, black characters throughout this movie that are in positions of authority and positions of, of, of seniority and it feels totally real. It's not like something that they call, it's not a plot point right. except for, except for this one Walter Matthau joke, which I guess is, I think we finally found where Jackie Gleason stole his joke from in Smokey and the Bandit, where he finally meets the black sheriff and is like, Oh, I thought you were taller. Like, isn't that exactly the line that Walter Matthau uses in this, in this movie when he bumps into the (laughs) black police commissioner or Lieutenant or whoever. I mean, I'm sure there's stuff in this movie that, you know, young people of today would find problematic, but I would like to say to those people, fuck off. Yeah. 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 Right. And I mean, and this film is aware of those things. And it uses yeah. it uses what is true in society to you know to have fun, to make things suspenseful, to 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 make things funny, and, and I think it's careful that the payoffs of a lot of these jokes aren't at the expense of the minority or whoever. They're they're almost always at the expense of the asshole who's being a jerk. <laughs> I think when you brought up satire, I think that's important. I mean, you know, it's it's not quite as uh, as as uh, cutting as network, but there is something you know in common there. Yeah, and I would say, um, and, and we're gonna. Oh, I've written down a, a whole synopsis. We can get into all this stuff, and I don't want to blow our whole wad in the first. I mean, or we could yeah. just have like a. 20 minute episode and be like yeah go see this movie it's fucking great it's really suspenseful brilliantly written blah 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 but i mean i mean the, we're here let's, let's right let's, let's talk about it. but let's do there, it there's this section uh that is maybe arguably the weak link of this movie and if you have to say like well is it really perfect and it's no it's more like imperfectly perfect but the whole gracie mansion subplot with the mayor mm-hmm. um you know, that almost feels like it's a slightly different movie and a slightly mm. less enjoyable or like on point movie. But I still like that. It's still great to see Tony Roberts and Doris Roberts. Absolutely. Uh, and um, it also helps alleviate the tension, which is something talking about how funny this movie is and all the comedic aspects of it. I just think it's so much better for that. It's so much better than it being this one note intense. Right. It it's almost like a, a novel. I mean, maybe like a cheap airport novel, but still <laughs> right. like a novel with all these characters. And and you know, when they're talking to the the thing with the mayor, that scene where it juxtaposes the scene with the mayor watching the newlywed game. 
Yep. And then the next scene is a Hector Elizondo brutally gunning that old guy down. You know, I mean, to me, that's what makes this movie great is like it's able to handle. There's a mastery of tone to it. Where Absolutely. And, they, and that happens time and again when something particularly yeah. scary or brutal happens. We quickly go to a scene that is lighthearted and comic and it doesn't feel jarring. It just right. feels like life and it feels like this is great. This is right. This is an entertainment. That's the thing. That's, That's the brilliant. thing that I feel. It's almost this weird, double-edged, annoying sword where the fact that this movie is such a movie theater movie, such a popcorn movie, such a piece of entertainment that it doesn't get the respect it should get it as should, like yeah. just a fucking fantastic movie. Like it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a negative characteristic that a movie is above all else just ridiculously entertaining. Well, I mean, what else is Joseph Sargent known for? TV stuff. Yeah. Jaws Jaws 4. (laughs) Right. Like bad movies and a bunch of TV stuff. And I think, you know, that that's all could be true, but there's no denying that, that this movie is just fantastically directed. Yeah. Like at no point, even knowing, you know, there's there's never a moment where I'm like, oh, I wish a better director had handled this material. Like I wish it's so dynamic in in the shooting style. Joseph Sargent, who is mostly a TV director, is handling that widescreen cinemascope mm-hmm. aspect yeah. ratio perfectly. But he's also amazingly also consistently framing things within that wider frame so that this movie plays perfectly well in a pan and scan uh you know 70s tv version of it Uh, and if you watch this movie you're like oh these characters all the action is within a four by three frame but that again it's not obvious um and all the stuff that's on the peripheries of the frame is still fascinating and interesting and 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 so that wider frame looks beautifully composed at all times uh but it's still is aware of the ways that people will watch this movie in the 70s uh, on TV and and not leaving things to fate or chance or somebody who's in charge of the pan and scan, like getting the Mm. thing wrong. They make it really obvious where you can frame this thing to get all the story elements. Yeah, he's not not Mike Nichols. Right. And and it's also, it's interesting because you can say the same thing about the movie in general, is that yes, it's got this great, at the center of it, it's a terrific suspense heist thriller, but there's so much, and, and if it was just that, that would be great, but the other thing about it is all of the little details, all of the little non-essential things around the edges of this movie are equally magical. And right. as great as all the lead performances are, it's an embarrassment of riches as to all of the supporting character actors oh in this God. movie. And how great they all are. It's crazy. It's crazy. You know, maybe this movie has something else in common with your favorite genre, it, the disaster picture. <laughs> yeah, you know? my favorite genre. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it, if you told me this was on a list of 70s disaster movies, that makes a lot more sense to me than 70s noir movies. But I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's a 70s noir movie in the way that it's got these ill-fated gangsters um, in the Things way that Jim Thompson well. wrote about them. Right. Yeah, Things yeah. don't go well yeah. for them. 
Right. I think of new when I think of noir, I tend to think more of like, well, the protagonist gets screwed in the end. You know, it's like people are doomed by fate and circumstances uh, that you yeah. care about. I don't think this is this is not a noir movie. Right. I don't think so. Yeah. But okay, here we go. Let's take a shot at this thing. Um, first of all, something we haven't talked about. The, the, the movie opens, these opening titles, and we've talked before about movies that sort of announce themselves, like in mm-hmm. the very first frame, and more importantly, the first notes of their opening title themes. Like, right. uh, we've talked about Black Sunday and The Fury, and of course, Jaws, Halloween. There are a bunch of movies that like you, from the very first note of that opening theme, you're like, I'm, in, I'm totally hooked on this movie. The, the, right. That opening title is setting the tone for this movie. I know everything I need to know, and I'm scared shitless, and I can't wait for the rest of this movie to unspool. And this has to be right up there for me. This fucking David Shire main theme with the brass and the jazzy. You know, it's part of a whole thing that was happening in the 70s with action movies. Like the French And the titles, the way they look, like you're in a prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just the white letter. It's totally the same opening titles as French Connection. I mean, this movie... This movie benefits a lot from the French Connection. Right. Well, Owen, Owen Reutzman, the cinematographer, shot that as well. Can I tell you something that I'm embarrassed to admit? Owen Reutzman is not a name that was on my radar at all. And when I looked up the movies he shot today, I was like, what is wrong with me? Yeah, Why isn't this great. guy spoken of in the same breath as all those other 70s cinematographers? Yeah, we all those opening all shots in this movie, you're like, wow, it's just perfect. And then you look up everything and it's like, oh, yeah, of course. This looks, you know, Three Days of the Condor, you know, which is great. Yeah. Let's keep going with the list of, 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 of Royce because we're here talking about him. Okay. It's, it's, there's uh, a crazy uh, amount of stuff. Let me Taps. Taps was, Taps was a huge movie for me when I was a kid. Was it? Yeah. It, it, you're the right age for that freaks me out he shot network all right so none of this is a coincidence here he shot uh, the, the exorcist, exorcist. he shot the french connection i mean really that's what that that's my point is like they they took the crew played again sam they basically reassembled the crew from french connection from the right. cinematographers and the editors to i'm sure all of the union crew that shot movies in new york they were all involved with both of these movies stepford wives straight time which i love Oh, yeah. The Heartbreak Kid. Absence of Malice. Absence of Malice. <laughs> Tootsie. Did I say Liza with a Z? No, but please do. Uh, oh, and his... He did Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah, that's a beautiful looking film. Just kidding. And, and his, his uh, masterpiece, Vision Quest. Well, a movie that I like less than Vision Quest, Lawrence Kasdan's I Love You to Death. You ever oh, see man. that? Wow. Yeah, I did. I saw it when it came out. Yeah, Bummer. me too. Wow. Adam's like family. That. So he shot Adam's family. Yeah. <laughs> Which is cool because, you know, that was the first time that Barry Sonnenfeld wasn't going to be the, well, he's going to be a director. And so he, he looks for Owen. I just don't know how. And what, was he on your radar? Is he a name that you knew, that you've known? No. Because I don't, how is it possible that the guy who shot French Connection, The Exorcist, and Taking a Pelham 123, among many others, is somebody who I was like, who, who is this? Like, I had to look him up. I, it's no, weird. He's, he's not Gordon Willis, you know? It's weird. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah, it's crazy. 
So, okay. So, so David Shire's score, I think, it's not even his score, because it, it's interesting. This is a movie where that main title theme doesn't really reappear during the movie. It comes back at the end in an even like bigger way for the end credits. Uh, but it's just terrific. I just, I would, if I was in a band again now, that's the music I would walk out to on stage. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the sound of the, of the subway. And, yeah. and and great, and I just I do find it fascinating that all those all those seventies thrillers were using jazz composers and sort of jazz scores in a way that mm-hmm. then went out of fashion, and you never hear that kind of thing anymore in thrillers. Right, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, right. Clint Eastwood, Don Siegel. They were all using like that guy Lalo Lalo Schifrin. Schifrin. Doing a lot of yeah, good who stuff. did the Gauntlet. I, that, I feel like that, that was some jazzy be, shit. Jerry Fielding. Oh, Jerry Fielding. Right. But the gauntlet, that feels like more like a, like a neo-noir in a way. Um, yeah. I love that movie. I yeah, keep wanting to get us to show that movie. So, okay, so we get those great opening titles, and then we start with Martin Balsam uh, on the street yes. heading into the subway. And it's cool that we start with Martin Balsam cause we kind of end with Martin Balsam. So that's a nice like right. book ending thing that they do. Smart. Um, Martin Balsam is one of those guys, like as long as I've been watching stuff, like I've known Martin Balsam, like he just was like ubiquitous in the seventies right. for me. Uh, but it's cool to like really think about his career from psycho and Cape fear. Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Catch-22, Little Big Man, The Anderson Tapes, which we mentioned before. I forgot that he was part of The Six Million Dollar Man. Mm. Uh, he was in the Sidney Lumet version of Murder on the Orient Express. He's in All the President's Men. He's in, right. he's in a movie that I'm excited to be showing this fall, Two Minute Warning. Uh, Death Wish 3, he's in. Uh-oh. Um, and also on TV in Archie Bunker's place, which All right. is not good. Yeah, kind of interesting. But the but the fact that the movie is bookended with him, I, I guess, gives us a chance to start to talk about the screenplay and Peter Stone, because I just think that this screenplay is just so great, the structure of it, but and all the dialogue, and Peter Stone. Great name, Peter Stone. Just a great name. Yeah. It's a name that I always think must be like a pseudonym, but yeah. I don't think it is. But, you know, he also wrote the screenplays for Charade and right. Arabesque, yeah. which are, to my mind, like the two best non-Hitchcock, Hitchcock, Hitchcock movies, movies in the 60s. Yeah. yeah. Especially Charade. I mean, that's a oh, great movie. Totally. And interestingly enough, features Walter Matthau. So there's that Walter Matthau, Peter Stone connection in Charade. And Matthau's character in Charade is terrific and, and like a real, I won't spoil Charade here for us today, but check out Charade if you never have seen it. It's a good one. And How I'm do not, you shave in there? Yeah, and not the, the, the Demi remake, which is not. not oh, good. man. No more remake trouble talk. With, the Trouble, trouble with, with Charlie. Charlie. Yeah. I'll tell you what the trouble is. It <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sucks. So we see Martin Balsam on the street heading into the subway. And then he gets into the subway at 59th Street. And they got uh, those great coats. Yeah. 
Everyone's got great coats and hats and fake mustaches. We get our first close-up of Balsam sneezing, which is a, a, a critical plot point. Here's the thing about this movie to me. It's got all these foreshadowing things, plot points that are that right. are like hammered home, but in a really in a way that you don't realize it how is being it, set how's up. How's it gonna pay off, right? Right. And the same thing with the way exposition is treated in this movie, where there's a ton of exposition that we get in the first ten scenes. But you're never you're never thinking to yourself, oh, okay, here's all the exposition. You know, you get all this information from Walter Matthau about how this command center works and how the subway right. works as he's and giving the, this tour to the Japanese uh, subway. And then there's the new employee on the train that's getting all yep, that information. Yeah, the new employee on the train. Absolutely. Right. But it's so beautifully woven into just whatever's going on in the scene. You just, you don't, you're not aware of all the information you're being fed because you're, because again, it's so enjoyable. It's done in such a, just a natural and entertaining way. Right. And also there are jokes built around all of those exposition scenes and, and other things that are happening to take your mind off of it. Even, even, even as important as it is that we get, told over and over and over again that Martin Balsam has a bad cold and that Walter Matthau is aware of that. Um, they take the trouble to make sure that Martin Balsam isn't even the only character with a bad cold. We've got the mayor who also spends the the whole movie blowing his mm, nose and stuff. Right. So that there's all these sort of like red herring kind of like ways to take your mind off of the really important details that they're really sort of like driving home. And I just think that that's all Peter Stone. And it's such a smart, I, I don't know how much of it comes from the novel, because this is based on a novel. Right. Um, but I know a lot of the cool, most iconic things about it are not in the novel, including naming all of the heist members uh, different colors, which of course... The Reservoir uh, Dogs thing. Yeah, which of course uh, Tarantino completely uh, made an homage to. I guess is the nicest way to say. It. That's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing about that rookie train conductor who who helps us get all sorts of expository information is that 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 character and it, he's played by this actor Jerry Holland who I don't think did much but is great in this movie. That character, to me, that character's arc is like the most tragic in the film. And it's shocking, I think, because in most of most other genre films, especially that have come after this, that kind of character, like the, the guy who's it's his first day on the job or he's the newbie, like the arc of that character is normally like that person ends up... Uh, being cool under pressure or or helpful to the protagonist in some way you know somehow today's the day yeah today's the day that they you know turn things around like that like like you're like oh boy this this guy's gonna be a problem but then he ends up helping to save the day which does not happen in this movie um but then we get like in die hard right exactly Who's the character? Who's that character? Who's an equivalent character in Die Hard? In Die Hard, maybe the limo driver, who yes. turns out to be yes. very important. Right. Yes. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. Right. 
So then we get to our first shots inside what will become the hostage car. And we get glimpses of most of, if not all, of these future hostages. And as I mentioned before, we get the old Jewish guy and the two annoying kids. Uh, and we get Martin Balsam blowing his nose again. Then we get one of these scenes that, again, is, is great because, again, it's, it's giving us information we need to know. But it's also, they take the time and the effort um, to make a real fun scene out of it. There's this little bit where um, that new trainee conductor calls out the wrong subway stop. And then his trainer uh, says, no, no, it he goes, it's 59th Street. He goes, no, it ain't. <laughs> <laughs> and then he tells him, uh, and then so then the guy gets back on the intercom and apologizes to everyone on the train, and he says, N- "Don't apologize, never apologize. Someone's going to come in here and punch you in the nose, in right. your damn nose." I just love, you know, I love that. I love all the little things on the margins of this movie. Like, there's no reason that that scene has to be in that, or that there has that that they're, you know, they they don't do that anymore in movies. They don't take the time to say, okay, what can these two characters. do? say to each other that's going to be fun and- right exactly and i know you don't want to talk about the remake but all that stuff is scrubbed from the remake yeah. where yeah. like tony scott the only thing he can think of rest in peace whatever the only thing he can think <laughs> of is that like the only thing that's interesting is the heist like he it's like he watched the movie and just failed to understand what he was seeing and it's not just a, it's not just him but it's everything it's like let's strip away all this other stuff and the premise of this movie is simple enough. Why not have some, you know, characters, some adornments around that, you know? Yeah, and but you know, it's one. It's it's this thing, and it. And I know that you are 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 have have a greater amount of comfort, or you're you're at peace with remakes in a way that uh, sometimes I'm not. Hmm. But it comes down to, for me, a lot of times it's like, what were you thinking needed to be fixed or redone? Or what was your take on the material that you thought, oh, I should do this because there's a whole other take on this that people are going to really appreciate or that I think will make this a better movie or like an alternate version of this story. Um, well, Link later under, understood baseball. He actually grew up around <laughs> baseball. I know what you're doing here. <laughs> no, 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 no. I wasn't even going to bring up that because oh, okay. I, I, I haven't seen it. But, um, but like, what was Rob Zombie thinking with Halloween, and what was David Gordon Green thinking with Halloween? Well, I mean, once again, I, I think Rob Zombie was like, uh, like, how did this guy get here? You know, he was like, well, maybe we should find out how he got here. He had a stripper mom or something like that. You know, it's just like the he's focusing on the wrong things. Like he watches a movie like that and goes, this is the movie I see. And it's like, wait, that's the movie you saw? That's not the movie that they made. It's not only right. It's not even as it's not just focusing on the wrong thing. It's focusing and it's focusing entirely on the most wrong thing you can like having the worst possible interpretation of what this what a movie needed that it didn't have 90 percent of what's so fantastic about halloween is that there is that mystery there is no answer you get a little you get enough backs you get as much backstory as you need in the first sequence yeah. of halloween what that's more it do you need what nothing 
He's nothing. pure evil. You know, you know what it is? Is like Rob Zombie w- was famously would talk about how he didn't think Halloween was scary anymore. And, you know, maybe Tony Scott thought that Pelham 123 wasn't exciting enough. So those two guys were going to correct this thing that they thought needed correcting. And it's like, Dad, you're totally are ruining the idea of what makes these movies special. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's a stupid phrase, but it's mind boggling to me. On the other hand, everybody's got to find their own way into the material, right? Otherwise, why do it? Well, let's talk for a second about Gus Van Zandt and his remake of Psycho. What was that about? (laughs) Well, I mean, that was not much more than a, a Warholian stunt, wasn't it? Yes, and, and in and that great. sense, he's if alone. Gonna, he's alone, gonna, right? Yeah. If but 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 there are, but there were I forget is it one or two changes that he made like different like it was a shot for shot remake, but then he stuck a couple things in right. with Vince Vaughn, and it's like why are you doing that? Right, yeah, right, masturbating. Right. What are right. you doing? Are you doing I mean, a shot dr- for shot remake and you want to see how that plays with different actors? Okay, that's an experiment. But then why are you doing what is so important to you about us seeing Vince Vaughn masturbating that you need to break your rule for this one scene? What are you doing, you fucking idiot? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um uh Hector Elizondo, uh who is so creepy in this movie. What, what what's what's your favorite Hector Elizondo? When he, uh, when he, uh, roll? Oh, I was going to ask, yeah, but go ahead. What's your favorite, what's your favorite Hector Elizondo thing that he does in this movie? That's fine. Yeah. If that's what you're going to answer. No, I was going to make a joke and say something about Julia Roberts. When he comes on to Julia Roberts, that's my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I like, he's great in Pretty Woman. I mean, come on. Okay. Do you like him in all of the, um, what's his name movies? No. Because that's who uses him more than anybody else. Yeah. Wow, Gary Marshall loved him. Yeah, I forgot about that. I guess so. I I can't really think of anything that I don't like him in. He's always a welcome presence. Did you know that he was... He is. But I think I kind of ultimately enjoy him most in this movie. Maybe because it's so against type for him. Oh, sure. Sure, but... but, uh, And, And he's so good at it. Like, it's interesting that he wound up having the career that he had after this is one of the first things that he did. Because I'm surprised he wasn't then typecast as this merciless. Well, he probably was until 1988 or 89. Was it 90? When did Pretty Woman come out? Uh, like Pretty Woman is 90. So I'll tell you everything he did between, now, between taking Pelham in 74. He also did Report to the Commissioner, which is another cool... 70s was he on any uh episodes of all in the family uh i will look into that yes he was okay there you go he was he was carlos mendoza in all in the family 1972 he also did kojak he did maud he did beretta he did an episode he did a columbo he was on the rockford files let's Um, just sit here and think about maud for a second okay (laughs) In in a sexual way no, just as being one of the great shows of all time. Yeah? All right, I'm done. Oh, yeah, I love Wow, that. look at you. All right. Um, that's a surprise to hear from you. He uh, he did this movie in 1976, which I'd never heard of, called Diary of the Dead. Not to be what? confused with George Romero's. Yeah. Not, yeah. 
Uh, and, and it's called a neo-noir film uh, based on a Ruth Randell mystery. Um, a Ruth, uh, Ruth Randell mystery. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't sound like a good movie, but I might want to check it out because he's the, he's the lead in it. And it's it a neo-noir. Uh, did you remember he's in American Gigolo? Is he? He's a cop. He must be. A, is he a cop in American Gigolo? Wow, maybe that's why he got cast in Pretty Woman. Maybe, maybe they were tight. Uh, he was in the fan, not the one that you and Gabe uh, talk about with De Niro, but the uh, Lauren Bacall, the fan. Oh yeah, I remember that one. And Flamingo Kid. Um, Great. Oh, now that's that's a good one. There you go. So anyway, Hector Elizondo, playing against type, or at least before he was a type, in this movie. And when he arrives in the hostage car, we get a look at the rest of these future hostages. Uh, and then, and Elizondo does this unspeakable. Let's take a look at the rest of you future hostages. And he takes a look at this blonde and does this really lewd thing with his tongue. Oh, right. Uh, it always, still to this day, disgusts me. Yeah, it's really, really creepy. Like yeah. he's so good at this at this creepy yeah. character, uh, and and then and then shortly after that, there's this uh, black guy comes up to him. He wants to get past him, but he's going to get too close to the motorman's car or whatever. And Elizondo mm-hmm. won't let him pass. And he's like, "Well, what if I want to get past?" And he goes, I'm, "Then I'm going to shoot you and your peepee." Which is <laughs> a very funny line. Or I'm going to shoot your peepee off. Um, but. What I love about Elizondo and that scene, he never looks at that guy. He's always just looking past him. He's totally like ice cold. Like, I don't even recognize you as a human. Just right. if you get any closer to me, I'm going to shoot your dick off. So he sh- he's like Mr. Blonde. Yes. Does, I don't Not remember. Me. Does Tarantino acknowledge? Uh, I know there's the City on Fire is the movie that he's always talking about was the inspiration for Reservoir Dogs. I don't uh, know City on Fire. But I don't know. I can't remember that I've ever seen Tarantino name drop this movie i'm i'm sure he'd come up i'm sure he'd come clean of pressed you know yeah so then we get the third hijacker arriving and that's mr brown played mm. by this guy earl hinman and he's the guy he's the hijacker that makes the least amount of, of an impression on me as many times as i've seen this movie he stutters but that's about it um, as far as like his personality, uh, do you yeah. get more of a vibe from him than I do? Well, I mean, he made a career out of sort of being unnoticed, didn't he? Because he he is best known for his role as the kindly unseen neighbor in Home Improvement. Right, Wilson. Right, which is a show that I never saw, but was aware of that character and was actually surprised to find out that this was the guy who was the actor. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Right. Is I mean, that right? Because you never see that guy, right? You just see the top of his head. Is that the? Yeah. Yeah. Were you a, were you, did you watch that show? Fuck no, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, Seinfeld was on at the time, and I was right. completely right. into Seinfeld. And a friend of mine was like, oh, "Did you watch Seinfeld last night?" He's like, "No, I've got kids. We have to watch Home Improvement." It's Tim the Tool Time Taylor. I was like, "You sad." Son of a bitch. He also was in uh, the Parallax View. I can't, and I can't think of who yeah, he was in that. I can't. He's been in some good movies. Is he? Uh, he was in Taps. Is, is he the other assassin? 
or the real assassin in Parallax View? No. No. Is he? I don't know. He's also in Silverado. He's also in Three Men and a Baby. Oh, my God. Three Men and a Baby. Oh. Well, he's not to be confused with Earl Hyman. That's, that's all we know. No, no. But his stuttering, th- it's weird. I've seen, I think, three movies this week that feature a, a prominently like a character who stutters, and that's like their defining. Huh. There's a guy, I just saw Peter Bogdanovich's Nickelodeon last night, and there's a stutterer in that that's like a lot of punchlines are based on that. Right. And then we recently screened um, David Lynch's The Straight Story and Sissy Spacek. I don't know. She's not really a stutterer. She's got a very strange speech pattern. Her character has is, is got some issues. Right. But but it sort of manifests itself as almost like a stutter. Yeah. You don't see too much of that anymore. I think stuttering has gone out of favor as a gimmick. Oh, yeah. It's certainly... As a comic device, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's done. Yes. It's, it's on the PC. Good riddance, I say. Yes. So finally, we get our first glimpse of uh, Robert Shaw. He's on the 28th Street platform. Um, Aim- so is he is he the last uh, uh, heist man that we see? Yes, they wow. saved the best for last, Mister Blue. I feel like it's very possible to make an argument for just about everyone involved in this movie uh, that this is their best work. You know, Joseph Sargent, everyone from like Joseph Sargent to Jerry Stiller. I mean, you can make art. You can certainly make arguments against that, but it's hard to. Even if you say, no, I like this better, like, I feel like for just about everyone, this has to be in their top five things that okay. they've done. Right. Don't you think? Well, I, I was about to, you know, fight you on Jerry Stiller, but that's fine. All right. Give, okay. What do you, what, other than Seinfeld, is there? What else is there other than Seinfeld? Well, I mean, if, I'm glad you, you have asked to boil that. It, if you have to boil it down, <laughs> right. Frank Costanza is, yeah. what? King of Queens, <laughs> uh, right? And it, and and he he hasn't done he didn't do a lot of movie work in the seventies. No, you know he's mostly a comedian. Um, you know, part of Stiller and Mira. Uh, but surprisingly, I didn't realize I forgot this. He's in Airport seventy five, which was also a nineteen seventy four movie. Wow, he's in the movie version of The Ritz. Um. The movie version of The Ritz? Yeah, The Ritz, I think, was like a Broadway or off-Broadway show forever. Yeah, based on the 1975 play of the same name. Well, reading about his early life, his family was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I didn't know that. Oh you, oh, you didn't realize that Jerry Stiller was a Jew? No idea. Yeah. Went right by me. Doesn't Ben Stiller seem like the ultimate Jew? Yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You grew up in Zion. Who knows? Yeah, you? yeah, okay. I don't know what your radar that, is. That is, well, I did grow up in Zion, right? Your Jew daughter. The most un-Jewish place. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like the most Jewish place. Did you know that Jerry Stiller is in Hairspray? The original? I did not know that, but I also didn't know that he was in... Uh, 
hot pursuit is that the real hot pursuit it is wow yeah, yeah. with uh, cusack i didn't yeah. know that i mean you know i always forget that he's in this movie there's so many people that i always forget are in this movie my favorite is and i don't even know his name but he plays the uh waiter in moonstruck uh who is he in this he is one of the controllers uh he, he's one of the people that works at the the heavyset guy james o'neill no. the guy who first is talking to the hijackers before uh math that takes over no he's oh. somebody else and i've tried to look up his name before and i never get anywhere with it uh just i mean even back then he looked like he was older than dirt <laughs> You know, right. so it was kind of like, I don't know who it is. Hmm. And I'm looking at the list, and I, I, I can't figure it out. All right. Well, back to Robert Shaw for a second. Okay, he so is, Robert uh, Shaw. So there's Jaws. Of course. And I love Black Sunday. but Black Sunday. Uh, but I wouldn't put that performance in the same league as this or Jaws. These, I feel like it's this and Jaws for Robert okay. Shaw. All right. I also like I like the Sting and I like him in the Sting. I know you're not a Sting guy. Or you never have. Well, I think he's he's pretty great in uh, For Much with Love. Yeah. Okay, but not but again not on this level. No, I mean he he's always going to be Quint. You know, I mean. But I think but but I think if he's not Quint, then he's this guy, Mr. Blue. I think this is his second most iconic performance. I don't even know if it's iconic because, like, even Walter Matthau doesn't feel iconic in this movie. And I think that's a testament to the movie that, like, everyone is just, they just feel like they all live in New York. And it just feels like you're being dropped in the middle of these people. Does that make sense? It totally does. And you're right. Iconic is probably the wrong word. Um but I think, like, uh, you know, if, if I'm on some pop quiz show or something and I'm like, name, you know, name two, name, name three Walter Matthau roles, name three Robert Shaw roles, you know, Pelham comes up for me for both of those. Sure, but if you walked up to somebody and said, Robert Shaw movie, no one's going to say this. If you walked up to somebody and said, Walter Matthau movie, no one would say this. Jerry Stiller movie. They're good. They're going to go hot pursuit for Jerry Stiller every time. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Hmm. All right. But I, I mean, know. that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a strength. It's yeah. a strength. Hector well, Elizondo, it's going to be Pretty Woman. Right. I mean, it, this is a movie where you, I sometimes like to have fun and say, look, who's this, you know, who is the real scene stealer in a particular movie? You yeah. Know, I, I go through, I go through. Uh, talking about like what's up doc where it's like well everyone's so funny in this movie but Madeline Kahn is just on a whole other level and right. she's you know like she steals that movie I think this this movie is nothing but like scene stealing performances by character actors who are just hitting every beat right. perfectly I, I would say maybe the, maybe the performance that comes close to like being like the scene stealer because they really shouldn't be is that guy Tom Petty not to be confused with Tom Petty, no. um, who plays that Kaz Dolowitz, the the, yeah. the fat, angry dude who gets gunned down on the thing. He, I can't get enough of him, and it's painful how little he did Tom Petty as an actor, at least on screen. He doesn't have a lot of credits. 
It's like this and the Iceman Cometh, where I guess he was a bartender he was most famous for. Well, have we talked about uh, the mayor and, and whether or not we think he's uh, Ed Koch or not? Uh, we haven't, but I have. Uh, but, but that was certainly on my mind because growing up and seeing this movie in the later part of the 70s, um, it was like, oh, they're doing Ed Koch. It's Ed Koch. It's Ed Koch. But it's not. It's, it shouldn't be because Koch was not mayor right 77 uh the mayor at the time of the movie was Abe beam um and before that was john Lindsay. i've read things where there's where they people think this was supposed to be a combination of Lindsay and beam but and it's just a weird coincidence that the actor looks so much like ed koch it's weird it's weird now koch ran for mayor in 73 i think and then dropped out and Abe beam Became was mayor. he like was he like an outsized presence on the campaign trail and people would remember him and that and he also was a congressman he was like a public uh. figure he was a politician so it's hard to believe that that somebody didn't have Ed Koch on their mind when they cast that role yeah but hard to say I haven't seen anyone officially come out and say yeah we were thinking of Ed Koch like I even read an interview with the actor and I can't remember what his name is but I'll bump into it at some point uh, and he doesn't he doesn't cop to any Koch Lee, Lee Wallace yeah Lee Wallace um, be confused with D Wallace right so he Robert was in Sh- Diary of the Dead too just you know off was he yeah, he was in The Happy Hooker. Oh, wow. Uh, Private Benjamin. Yeah, he seems like a guy who would be like uh, a guy running out of a whorehouse when it's being raided with like his, <laughs> with, with no clothes on. Like, he seems like that's the guy you'd hire for that role. Right. Um, so Shaw arrives and immediately pulls a gun on James Broderick playing the train's motorman. Do you know the difference between the conductor and the motorman? I think I figured it out when I just finally decided to think about it today. The one guy drives and then the other guy goes and takes tickets and shit. Well, in the subway system, there's no tickets to take. So the conductor right. isn't doing that. But I feel like he's the one communicating. He's conducting business. He, he Right. He's... He's the one who talks over the internal uh, intercom and tells people what stop is coming. And I think I is there know. a conductor on, on on the subway? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, there used to be. I don't know what goes on anymore. But but the conductor is the kid. Is the the the, the tragic arc character is the conductor oh, right. in this movie. Okay. And James Broderick is the motorman who you're right is just driving. Like his only role is to be in that front car watching speeding up slowing down hitting the brakes all that stuff so james broderick is matthew broderick's father oh all did right you know that i did not know that maybe best yeah. known for his role as the patriarch in the series family oh well, with, uh, my mom loved family with buddy yep buddy christy mcnichol um and then he's also great in dog day afternoon yes he's got a big role in Uh, then we finally get our first glimpse of Walter Matthau. He was Irish, too. He was Irish. He was Irish. You're just letting us know. He was Irish and Catholic, just to let you know. 
He grew up. Wait a minute. He grew up in. He was Irish and Catholic, but Matthew Broderick does not strike me as Irish and Catholic. No, Matthew Broderick always comes off a little bit more like Jewish to me. Yeah, yes, is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> you are not picking up what I'm throwing down at all. Yeah, what can I do? What were you going to say? This is going to be good, I can tell. Now, as we're moving on to Matt Thou, okay, who arrives on the scene. Um, and for me, my favorite Matt Thou would probably always be Bad News Bears, but this is... Oh, yeah. God, man. What a a new leaf. A new leaf is a recent favorite of mine. It's terrific. I mean, I don't. Walter Matthau is incapable. I think of giving a bad performance. I think that Peter Stone wrote fantastic dialogue for this movie. I think the, everyone's got great lines to read. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, um, even the parts of the movie which are like I keep saying like full of exposition and or maybe not great lines when you put them in the hands of Walter Matthau like Walter Matthau guiding that tour and all that stuff he's spewing out like anyone yeah. else reads that and it's just in one ear and out the other but Walter Matthau makes all of that stuff great to listen to right right well looking at Wikipedia he is best known for like they list 20 movies and this is not one of them wow Wow. I mean, the grass harp is in there. Out to Sea is in there. JFK is listed in there. Uh, what? The Fortune uh, wait, Cookie. What the Face in the Crowd. King Crail. Did you say this is Wikipedia? Wikipedia. Best known for his film roles Face in the Crowd, King Creel, The Bad News Bears, uh, Fortune Cookie, Odd Couple, Front Page, Buddy Buddy, JFK. What? Grumpy old men, grumpy old men. The grass harp. I don't. I don't know what that. I don't know what the hell that is. I don't either. Out to sea and the Odd Couple too. Yeah, yeah. He's better known for Odd Couple too than this. Sure. What a fucking joke. <laughs> Charade. Hello, Dolly. I didn't realize he was in that until I saw it a couple weeks ago. New Leaf, California Suite, Plaza Suite, Koch, Charlie Varick, The Sunshine Boys, and Hopscotch. Nowhere do they talk about this movie. Which kind of puts one in my column. You know, he's so great in this movie, and yet nobody really thinks of this movie when they think of him. I mean, I do think that there's a case to be made that this movie meant something uh, growing up in New York in the 70s and 80s that it wouldn't have meant for anyone else in other parts. It's a a piece of regional cinema, really. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> made by New Yorkers for New Yorkers. I yeah, I, I mean, I yeah. don't know. Um, I mean, but then, but then you could say the same thing about Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, and you know, they just. Well, those. I mean, yeah, but those were those were bigger movies made by an auteur who was sort of like already known and was like everyone was like you know the, the, like a critic's darling, sort of at the height of his powers. Um, and, and they were bigger movies. This is a pure genre film, probably thought of as an exploitation film based on, uh, like you said, like a airport, n- you know, crime novel. Right. Um, and not not particularly well received at the time. It got a good review in the New York Times, but I, I you know, got plenty of other reviews where people were like, eh, whatever. You know, just Basically sort of a three star movie. 
Yeah, two and a half, three star movie. And, you know, there are a lot of movies that 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 happens to that are later looked at as like, wait, what was anyone thinking? This thing couldn't be any better. Like, this yeah, but is how did this movie do at the box office? I bet it made more money than Taxi Driver. Yeah. The budget was $3.8 million. Uh, I mean, the film holds a 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I never trust that stuff. Well, box office, no. Box office thought that some of the excitement has been lost translating the novel to the screen. But there is entertainment value in Peter Stone's screenplay. Well, here's something that's painful. So the budget for taking a Pelham one two three this this version nineteen seventy four was three point eight million dollars. The budget Give for taking a Pelham one two three two thousand nine was a hundred million dollars, <laughs> <laughs> and it made a hundred and fifty million dollars that two thousand nine version. Oh God! The television film had Vincent D'Onofrio replacing Shaw. Mm. And was it was it uh, Edward James almost in the Walter Matthau role? That's right. Box office. Oh, I'd have to go to IMDb Pro, which I don't belong to, to find out the box office. Where were we in the plot of this thing? Oh, so we get we <laughs> so we get Walter Matthau, um, and he's introduced uh, to a group of Japanese subway system directors. I love the actress who introduces them to him. Her name, which I had to dig for, is Penny Crompier, and she what? she did almost nothing. Before or after this, she almost nothing. Other I've never heard of it. <laughs> um, but don't you? Isn't she great in her couple of lines? You remember her? She has to yeah. like. She has to remember all of their names, and she does a great job, sort of. Right. Getting some of them almost right, and right, she's just right. charming. I'm just charmed yeah. by her, as I am by just about everyone in this movie. Uh. So anyway, from there we go back and forth between that command station and the hijackers um, as they decouple that car from the rest of the train. Um, they nice. send, James, send James Broderick and the rest of the passengers on their merry way. Um, they bring the conductor into the hostage car uh, where he becomes another hostage. Uh, and then we get introduced to the people in the Grand Central Tower, uh, which is that Kaz Dolowitz guy, who is, as, I, as we talked about a couple minutes ago, I, one of my favorite things about the movie and a real scene stealer. Uh, but he's almost met uh, in that scene stealing with the woman um, who also works at that uh, um Grand Central Tower, where she is, um, she is responsible for dropping her wedding ring down a toilet and clogging the toilet, which is what brings, I think, brings Kaz there in the first place. Um, and it gives us him an opportunity to say all kinds of misogynistic things right. about women in the workplace. And but her name, that actress's name is Beatrice Windy Wind Wind Wind. Yeah, she's great. And I feel like she's somebody who looks really familiar to me, but looking at her credits, it didn't jump out at me particularly as to what I knew her from. Uh, she was in The Sopranos. Yeah, much later. And I can't... Do you remember wh- what she did on that show? 
No. She was in one other thing in the 70s. I hope she played Polly's mother. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Uh, well, she was the... in a lot, dude. Like, she, she, she was, I mean, I don't know how, she was in Mandingo and Hide in Plain Sight, Stars and Bars, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Would you have remembered her from that? Yeah, I, maybe from The Gambler. But I, but it must have been. I feel like it was a TV thing, and I can't figure out which TV. Th- I, I thought she must have been a regular on a TV show, and I, it doesn't look like she was. No, that, like even on Sopranos, she was just a funeral guest. Right. Law and Order. Looks like she played four different roles in four different episodes of Law and Order. That show just didn't give a shit, huh? No, they don't care. I mean, a lot of TV was that way. They'd recap, you know, a lot of those long-running like cop shows or even sitcoms I think sometimes they would just keep recycling the same actor in different right, roles like I'm sure the same villain the same guys were on Beretta like five million times as different thugs yeah uh, I know it happened on like the Rockford Files all the time oh, can we just take a second and think about the Rockford Files mm-hmm. what a great show yeah I, I, is that does that stream anywhere? I feel like I want to just sit down and watch. I don't know. I don't know. But it seems to me like a huge influence on uh, Better Call Saul. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then they take over the train. They take over the train, and uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, Mathau is still conducting this tour, and he's now decided because these Japanese guys aren't saying a word to him, so he's now decided that they don't speak English. Right. And so he feels free to say whatever he wants about them. Yes. So he's doing things like saying, like, this way, dummies. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we get the introduction of the character Frank Carell, who's played by the spectacular Dick O'Neill, who I thought you might have been talking about before. And Dick O'Neill has a list of TV credits that is like a mile long. And, and, um, and some and a, and a a really cool sprinkling of of movie. I mean, he did a lot of movies, but like some of the movies are are he's in The Jerk. Yeah. He's in Wolfen. He's in uh, Pritzi's Honor. The Mosquito Coast. Mosquito Coast. Um I mean, but look at those TV shows. Yeah. He was on them all, from the Jackie Gleason show to Sanford and Son, Good Times, Three's Kojak, Company, Barney Miller, uh, Cheers, yeah, Rhoda. I mean, oh, <laughs> Rhoda. Rhoda. He was on Rhoda and Phyllis. Amazingly, maybe he played the same character. Mm, Wonder Woman. Look like it. Mm. Did you say one day at a time? I did not. I was about to. I said Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Mash. Yeah. Different strokes. I mean, wh- it's crazy. You roll down this list of TV shows that Dick O'Neill was in, and it's basically every single network every show. comedy yeah. from 1970 through 1998. Right. I mean, he might be, out of all the actors we've looked at in this movie so far, he might have the most credits. It's a lot. It's a lot. And he's terrific in this movie. Yeah. 
and, and he's got the, and he's got this one stunt which I feel is a stunt that went wrong but they they were able to keep the cameras rolling long enough to use it where Mathal is like furious with him and like shoves him and he falls into his chair which I think is supposed to happen but then the chair collapses and he like lands on the floor and it looks like that can't have been planned <laughs> um, but it's a great moment yeah uh, so, uh, <laughs> there's this great moment where, so here's something I want to say about this movie, which is that a lot, a lot, a lot of it is composed, uh, comprised of these conversations between characters who are not in the same room with each other. And so they're talking on the phone or they're talking right. on walkie talkies or they're talking on these intercom systems and not once do I ever think in my head like oh yeah right they're not really talking to each other Mm -hmm. like these films were shot separately and these these actors are not reacting to each other you know in the moment the way we're watching it on screen I, i can't think of another movie that does this so much and does it so well like do you do you agree that like it's like so seamless and you never are reminded of the fact that this is a movie and not two people yeah. actually talking to each other. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the chemistry between Robert Shaw and Walter Matthau is totally established long before they meet up in real life. Um, all the stuff that happens between Jerry Stiller and Walter Matthau. And, but, but, and you know, it's not just Walter Matthau. It's all these other characters are talking to each other the same way. And um, it never gets... It never feels static or boring the way you would think like a movie comprised of telephone conversations would. Like normally right. people talk on the phone a lot in a movie and I'm like, why are we, why is this a movie? This should be like a radio, <laughs> you know, play. But that's the other thing. It's like Joseph Sargent, he's constantly moving the camera. He's got beautifully composed tracking shots and it's such a cinematic movie. Yeah. Uh, and with a great degree of difficulty considering the fact that all these characters are separated from each other and 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 they all they all establish these relationships that are are strictly a result of of editing and sound editing and just yeah performance yeah i mean and you know once again above all it's entertaining and it's just this mantra that the movie and the makers of the film seem to have it's just like let's let's not be boring here you know right who i'm trying to remember walter Matthau introduces the uh japanese guys to jerry stiller who's who's who jerry stiller the jew playing rico patron the italian guy uh yeah which again it goes to my long-standing thing that like in new york anyway the jews and the italians are all there it's exactly the same thing like there's no there's no telling them apart I guess back to the mob unless you watch what they eat but right but 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 I love he introduces Rico and he says this is Rico Patron blah blah and on the weekend works for the mafia um and then and then Jerry Stiller's got that great line he's like with Walter Matthaus trying to get him to say anything to these guys (laughs) he's like tell them about all the exciting stuff we do Jerry Stiller (laughs) says well we had a bomb scare in the Bronx yesterday but it turned out to be a cantaloupe um so I mean it's full of great like one-liners that are delivered by great you know comic actors right um 
And then there's like another thing where he says, uh, "What's it, where Jerry Stiller's like? What's going on there?" And, he's, and Walter Matthau goes, I'll, uh, "You're not going to believe this." And Jerry Stiller says, "I'll believe anything." And then Walter Matthau says, the, the, "A train's been hijacked." And he, he goes, "I don't believe it." <laughs> um, uh, so 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 now everyone knows that the train has been hijacked, and uh, Kaz Dolowitz, uh, the amazing Tom Petty, heads down to the 28th Street station to see for himself. He's like, I'm gonna go there right. and figure out what's what. And he's got this great scene where he's walking through the train station, and all the other cops and transit cops are like, "What's going on?" Or the, and the people are going, and he goes, "Who wants to know?" He's just storming through. He's the biggest asshole, but like, just so lovable in his own horrible way. Um, and then he bumps into James Broderick on the tracks himself, and he's like yelling at him for abandoning ship. He's like, "You're supposed to be like the captain of the ship. You're supposed to go down with the ship. You weren't supposed to leave." the subway car and James Broderick's like fuck that (laughs) (laughs) so poor Kaz Dolowitz marches towards this uh, hijacked train car and comes into uh, contact with Hector Elizondo who tells him do not come any further Kaz Dolowitz is like bullshit and then Elizondo guns him down Guns him down. If he hadn't done what he told him not to do, then he'd still be alive. Right. But this puts him into conflict with Robert Shaw, who, um, for as ice-blooded, ice-cold murderous as Robert Shaw is, he's he's not for this. He's not for this uncontrolled violence. Or he doesn't want want these guys to be acting on their own. Like right. it's clear, it's suddenly clear that Hector Elizondo is not taking orders from anyone. He's got his own idea about what he's going to be doing. Yeah, he's Michael Madsen. Yes, exactly. Right, right. You're right. So much of Reservoir Dogs comes from this, and 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 so many other. And I'm sure this isn't the first one that has this dynamic. You know, the one member of the gang who's a psychopath and out of control that everyone else has to sort of. Right. Deal with until they're. Who's that? Who is? Is there a guy like that in Die Hard? Uh, sort of the the big blonde Neanderthal guy. The guy whose brother gets killed right away. Right. And, yeah. Right. Sort of. I mean, it seems like there is that character in so many movies, like maybe in the Lethal Weapons movies and Cliffhanger. Oh, who's the who's the psychopath in Cliffhanger? Well, I guess there's nobody more psycho than John Lithgow. Mm. But 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 everyone does want a piece of J- Sylvester Stallone at some point. Right, 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 right. Uh, so uh, Shaw uh, lays out his demands to Dick O'Neill. He needs a million bucks, which I think. It's funny because, you know, that seems like a, a proper amount in the 1970s. Right. Like a million dollars is like, yeah, that's a standard thing. That's, you know, it's way before whatever Austin Powers and Dr. Right. Evil and that whole joke. Except that um, there is a, there is a, there is like a, a, a line in this movie where the old Jewish guy is like, I just want to know how much are you asking for us? I want a person likes to know how much their life is worth. And Robert Trust says a million dollars. 
<laughs> and and the, the 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 old guy says, "Oh, that's not so great." <laughs> so even back then, that guy was like, "That you're not asking for enough money." Well, also when they finally dumped the money out, yeah. I remember thinking, "Like that's it? Yeah, that's that's all a million dollars is." Yeah, 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 yeah. But those guys seem totally okay with it, and uh, or at least, but 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 they want to make sure they get all of it. I, I like that uh, Martin Balsam. Not to not to jump too far ahead, but when he is Please. making his escape, he he grabs <laughs> he grabs uh, he grabs the bloodstained, and I think I, I'm assuming there's a bullet hole through the stack of bills that he grabs off of the, one of the dead uh, yeah. hijackers at the end. He doesn't care. He wants the yeah. money, whether it's got a hole in it and blood on it or not. Uh, so yeah, so then from there, it's like, uh, it's like this, this middle part of the movie, which is, which is really the race against the clock to get them the money. Cause Robert right. Shaw is like, they've already killed somebody. So there's that. And in a way the Hector Elizondo characters helped him out to show them that they are actually, uh, not fucking around. But here's the thing is like, he really does want the money. Like, you know, when, when we talk about like something like, uh, Die Hard or any of the others, like he's doesn't really want the money. He's got something else in mind, and he's got every all the authorities going to do that thing, and he's just getting them off the trail. Right here, or, he really does want the money. Yes, or that it's that they really want the money, but they have this whole elaborate scheme to make people think that that's not what it's about. That the, the in those Die Hard movies. I think time after time, the, the the issue is that there's all this crazy shit going on, which is obfuscating what they're really doing, which is like a simple, like, all I really want is the money. Right. But it okay, takes forever okay, for them okay. to figure those things out. Right. Whereas this one, there isn't that. Uh, the, 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 the question, the trick, the thing that, that, the, that the plot hinges on is how are these guys thinking that they're going to get away with this? Get away, right. But there isn't any, they're not being coy about what, they're not pretending to be doing something that they're not actually doing and they're not right. hiding the fact that they're this, we want money, give us a hundred, give us a million bucks and don't worry about how we're going to escape. That's not, that's not for you to worry about. Yeah, We've yeah. got to figure it out. Um, uh but so there's this whole midsection in the movie, which is the race against the clock to get them their money in time. And that, and that, and the, so there's, we spend a lot of time with these two police officers who had the money and they're driving through traffic and they end up, um, getting into a, a car crash. Um, and in the meantime, uh, Walter Matthau makes his first clever deduction, which is that he can sort of tell the hot, the hijackers, whatever he wants, cause they can't, they can't see what's going on. All right. Um, and let's not forget that at some point, Kenneth McMillan arrives on the scene as like a, a reg, uh, not a transit cop, but a regular cop. Um, and Kenneth McMillan, I mean, again, has done a bunch of things, but is there anything more iconic for him, at least for me, than him in Dune, in David Lynch's Dune? <laughs> where he is so disgusting. Right. It's got all these oozing. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Right. Never. Never. Yeah. 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 And 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 is Sting his son in that movie? I don't remember. I mean, that movie is that whole thing like just turned me off from it. 
<laughs> the, the whole Kenneth McMillan the, thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I never really got too far into it. Oh, but you, he was I, also great in Salem's Lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kenneth McMillan, great, great. I mean, and just another one of these guys. Like every time you think, like, oh yeah, they've got all those New York character actors that there are to have in a movie in this movie. Then another one shows up, and you're like, oh right, this fucking guy too. You know, it's like an endless procession. <laughs> right, it perfect. never ends. That's yeah. what's amazing about it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, not only, by the way, uh, getting back to who made this movie and and talking about Owen Roisman and um, all that crew, this movie was edited by this by two guys, but one of whom is Gerald Greenberg. Did you take a look at his fucking filmography? No. What do we got from him? All right. And this is a partial filmography. Uh, French Connection, he edited. Uh The Seven Ups, Taking a Pelham, Missouri Breaks, Apocalypse Mm. Now. Nice. Kramer versus Kramer. Oh. Dressed to Kill. What? Yep. Heaven's Gate, Reds. Which version? Well, that's a good question. Did he win an Oscar for Reds? Uh, he's he for Reds. He's listed as an additional editor. I think Reds okay. had like fifty editors. Yeah, Still of the Night, which is not a good movie, but mm-hmm. uh, Scarface, the De Palma Scarface, mm-hmm. uh, Body Double. So he was the he was De Palma's editor. De Palma's guy for a while. Yeah, including Wise Guys. Ooh, Ooh uh, <laughs> man. Yeah. Uh, Christmas Vacation. Uh, the worst of all the vacation movies. American History X. Wow. Must In, yeah. Inspector Gadget. Uh, the remake of Get Carter. Uh-oh. And the remake of Point Break. So anyway, a lot of bad movies, but a lot of like unbelievable movies. I yeah. mean, just a crazy list of movies. Uh no reason to hold the stinkers against them. Let's just no, no, celebrate no, no. the good ones. Absolutely. Uh, but back on the hostage card, Shaw is expressing his grave reservations about Elizondo to Balsam. Then Balsam, then Elizondo guns down Kaz Dolowitz. And then we get to spend some time with this transit patrolman uh, played by Nathan George. Uh, he's the mm. cool like black guy who's right. cool and calm under pressure. He was also in Clute and Serpico and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Short Eyes and Brubaker and Night Falls on Manhattan. So that, and that's like his entire Jesus, filmography. he's like John Cazale. I know, right? But that's it. That's his whole filmography. Like every movie, like a classic sort of New Yorkish. ish Well. What? what I said, say? wow, that's amazing. Oh, oh, I thought you said, well. <laughs> I thought you were going to stop. I said, Wow. Chance. Uh, so back down in the subway Shaw gets the news that the ransom is going to be paid after a whole argument at Gracie Mansion which is some of the social satire part of this thing Mm -hmm. Um, he gives elaborate instructions to Walter Matthau to get the cash delivered along with the reminder of the deadline Um, so then I was saying so we get these two cops trying to deliver the money they're the ones who mm-hmm. got to walk the tracks, right? Yeah. And then just as they're about to get there, some of these snipers take a shot. 
Um, and so Rob and, and, and wound, uh, Mr. Brown, uh, Earl Hinman. Yes. Mr. Brown. And so Robert Shaw decides he needs to, uh, deliver some payback and decides they need to execute one of the hostages and who gets picked by our poor trainee conductor. Oh no. Yeah. Things get personal. Poor guy. So they get the money. Money's delivered, divided, and then they, they got to get away. Right. And then they launch their plan, which is this thing about, uh, getting the train moving again and having everyone assume that they're on this train right. uh, that's headed downtown. Um, and Mathau figures out that they're not on the train anymore, that they've jumped off the train. Right, that their whole thing has been based on the idea that they could figure out a way to keep the train moving without one of them actually running it. Right. Which is another, which is, which is part of the reason why I can't remember exactly how they all know that there's somebody who has worked as a motorman or a, or a conductor uh, as part of this gang. It, it might be because James, does James Broderick ever talk to anybody and say, oh, I had this conversation with the Martin Balsam character and he, he used to work for the transit authority. Uh, I, I can't, I, I can't remember that. In but my I, mind, but, I feel like that should have and could have happened, but I don't remember it. That scene actually being in the movie when I watched right. it this week. But in any case, they Matthau's already assembling a list of potential former transit workers who are also criminals or something. And right. So to, to, He's to figured that out. Yeah, yeah. Right. He figures that they're that's a good a good lead. Um. So meanwhile. Uh, the hijackers uh, have jumped off the, the 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 train. The train is moving through, um, and this is the disaster movie part of the movie, as you were alluding to earlier. Yeah, this, the train is now speeding through uh, along the subway tracks, and one of the things that the hijackers have done is demanded that all of the sort of stop signals be turned green. Um, right. And so there's nothing to stop this train, which is picking up speed and headed towards, I don't know, a, a huge crash, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in the meantime, they're getting ready to sneak back out one of these sort of, uh, I don't know if they call them emergency exits, but there are all these sort of hidden exits in the subway system. I guess exits and entrances so the workers right. can get, get down there. Um but meanwhile, this other sort of thread that's been uh, drawn throughout is this issue of this undercover police person who nobody knows who it is. And in fact, Matthew keeps speculating that it could be a woman. Like everyone keeps saying, like, why hasn't the undercover cop done anything yet? And first of all, I don't know how they know that the undercover cop is in that car. Mm. Um, maybe because that undercover cop hasn't shown up anywhere else. Um but anyway, this guy who's who is turns out is like this hippie-ish looking dude who's been on the train this whole time. He jumps off the train. He's got a gun, uh, but he's also injured from his jump. Uh, but he ends up uh, shooting uh, one of them, Mr. Brown. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, 
Hector Elizondo's like, I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not doing this plan. I'm leaving. Robert Trevor wants the gun from him uh, and ends up shooting him because he's had enough of him. So yeah. Hector Elizondo's dead. Mr. Brown is dead. And all that's left is Robert Shaw and Martin Balsam. And Robert Shaw says, Martin Balsam, take some, take your money. I'll meet you later. But doesn't Blue electrocute himself? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not, that hasn't happened Okay. Yet. I, I... He goes back down on the tracks to figure out who shot Mr. Brown. And he finds the undercover cop, and he shoots him, and he's about to execute him when, lo and behold, Walter Matthau shows up, points a gun at him. Robert Shaw decides he has this great line that I always remembered as a kid. It's like, you, you, you don't have capital punishment here anymore, do you? And Walter Matthau goes, nope. And he goes, ah, oh, that's a pity. And then electrocutes himself because he'd rather, yeah. rather die than spend spend the rest of his life in jail <laughs> uh, I always love that scene I love Robert Shaw electrocuting himself and the smoke coming out of his gloves and uh, super cool and <laughs> Walter Matthau's kind of grossed out by it uh, so that's the climax a great exciting climax I think and then 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 we still have like a I don't know seven ten minutes left of uh, denouement right and and, and which the, the run up to one of the great ending shot, ending freeze frame shots of all time. Yeah. Do you have a list of any other ending freeze frame shots you want to throw it up against? You know, it's right up there with uh, uh, Truffaut and the 400 Blows, right? Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> totally different. Right up there. <laughs> totally different thing. But yes, absolutely. I like to. Uh, I always love the end of I always love the end of Cutter's Way, which you said, oh, that's the same as and I can't remember what you compared that to. Was it this? No. Something else. Where the, the something else where it ends with a gun firing. You don't actually see the result of the gun fire. But you oh, sort right. of know that it is. The omen? Mm. Well, yeah, that's a good one. But I mean, this one is great because it's so funny, and and it's been sitting out there the whole time, and it's the final. It's the finally, it's the payoff to Martin Balsam's cold and right. Walter Matthau's Sankazintaitum Tum throughout the movie, um, and talking about the cold with him. It's just perfect, but absolutely perfect ending. And then boom, end credits with uh, more of the amazing David Shire theme for this movie. I love and, it, and you know, like. Walter Matthau could have given any one of a hundred looks, but that look that he gives is just the perfect one. And it's so unexpected. It's just like, that's the look that you went with. You know, I mean, it, it somewhere, it almost, it's like a precursor to his performance in Dennis the Menace. I mean, it's just a look (laughs) that I can't, I'm like, what is this look? Yeah. It's the, it's the dude you're busted. Uh, Oh, uh-huh. It's it's a totally like, yeah, okay. Uh we both know what's going on here now. Dude, you're busted. Yeah. Perfect movie. Perfect movie. Perfect movie theater movie. Perfect popcorn movie, which really Yeah, and when that, I, I finally saw it in a theater and it was just 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 the response from the audience and sometimes I get really annoyed at the response from the audience. But this was just 
really perfect and everyone was having a great time and I was just shocked at how much fun the movie was. I never would have thought it was this much fun. So if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. Do I remember what? Do you remember what got you into the theater? Like what made you decide to go to it? Well, I was there because it was uh, it was part of the whole um, it was part of a noir festival, right? And so they were doing this whole section where they were doing seventies neo noir, and I watched all of the movies and, oh, okay. and all the movies that they showed were great. You know, they were showing Blue Collar, like I said, and you know. Uh, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, they were all terrific, but this one was so, so good. Um, and yeah, I don't think I ever would have seen it if it hadn't been for that. Never. Never cool. would have seen it. Well, the movie is an hour and 44 minutes. We've been talking for an hour and 36. We are under, oh. the, we are under the wire. I can't believe it. We have it. a little less than 10 minutes to play a quick game of what else was playing the week that uh, Taking a Pelham 1, 2, Let's 3 do opened. it. And Let's this... Is a particularly kind of great week, I would say. Let me share my screen. Let's see this. I mean, you know, here we are, 1974. It doesn't get much better than this. Uh, wow. 2001 is still playing? Well, always. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a lot of like, oh, yeah, right, that, that's a re-release. Tom Laughlin as Billy Jack in Born Losers. Right, which is a total re-release because Born Losers was the one, was the, was the, first Billy Jack movie okay. before there was even a Billy Jack so but here's a movie that I've never heard of and meant to look up when I looked at this today The House That Vanished mm. is it too soon to talk about 72 that time Paul and Valerie fell in love at first sight and began searching for a place to have an affair from that company it's only what a company? movie I, and the, the, the company is American International Pictures which okay that's funny um but, but they say, in the great Hitchcock tradition, uh, and then, the, I'm sorry, the rest of the tagline is, and then they kept searching till they found the house that vanished. So I'm Have assuming, you seen this? No. I'm assuming it's a horror. I never heard of it. Uh, I'm assuming it's a horror movie directed by somebody I don't know, Joseph Laraz. Oh, it's a Hallmark production. <laughs> mm. And, of course, there's plus a second feature at most theaters. Well, oh, cool. Always, always a sign of... Yeah. The Apprenticeship uh, of Duddy Kravitz, a movie I've never seen. Yeah, I've never sat through the whole thing either. But it was, really? a, it was it's a movie that it was. I remember my grandparents saying, "Hey, do you want to see this movie?" Like it was something uh, that they were offering up as a chance for me to go see, and I just didn't take them up on it. I don't know. Uh, uh, it's Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, I know. And that. I think I've watched some of it uh, in later years, but never, never made it through the whole thing. Kind of like Nickelodeon, which I never. It's the heard movie that made his bones, movie. though, right? Yes, yeah. Before Jaws, right. it was. Um, here's a movie seduction I remember hearing about Mimi. all the time: Lena Wert, Mueller, Seduction of Mimi. Uh, yeah, I almost watched it a few weeks ago. I, I instead decided to watch Swept Away. And I watched, I was like, okay, I, I've never really dealt with Wirt Mueller, and her movies are on Criterion, and I picked, is it Seven Beauties? Seven Beauties. Maybe. It, 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 it stuck with me. Swept Away really kind of did, did a number on me. Wow, you know, I, okay. I don't know if it, I thought it was great, but I was kind of like, she's definitely got something to say, and, and uh, 
nobody else is saying it like that. Right. Did you ever see the Guy Ritchie remake? Oh, fuck no. Uh, of course, the Marx Brothers uh, Animal Crackers was playing that week at the yeah. King's Plaza South, which is where I might have seen it if I had gone to it. Wow. In glorious black and white. That's so great. California Split was playing at the oh, Sutton man. in the Murray Hill. You ever see California Split? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. The Night Porter. You ever seen The Night Porter? I started The Night Porter. Okay. Uh, then I fell asleep. Yeah. A little number called Death Wish was playing at the oh, Lowe's yeah. Astor Plaza, which was always my favorite movie theater in Manhattan. It's a real winner. That's a real winner. Get it? Mm-hmm. King of Hearts, a movie I did see as a kid in theaters with my grandparents. Uh, big cult movie that nobody talks about anymore. Plus, Bambi meets Godzilla, which was like a thing throughout the 70s. Why, why was King of Hearts such a cult movie? Oh, it was one of those movies that was like an art house darling that played forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And wow. I've never, just I've never heard of it. Right. Alan, I've heard of Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, though. Uh, Escape to Nowhere is a movie I don't know what it is, but of course, Hitchcock is finally rivaled, we've been told by The New Yorker. Yeah. Escape to Nowhere. Finally. Well, that movie escaped to nowhere. Um, and then, let's see, is there anything else on this page? Hitchcock was shaking in his boots. I, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've said this throughout this show, like that, that in, in the 70s, all anyone ever did was compare things to Hitchcock. And I, then I almost convinced myself that I was just sort of exaggerating, but I'm not. It's like no. there isn't a single page in this New York Times where Hitchcock's name won't be mentioned. Right. Till sex do us part. Do not know this movie. Never heard of this movie. Oh, it's from, from the I Am Curious Yellow producer or director. I don't know, but here it's uh, William Wolfe of Q says contains the f- contains filmdom's funniest scene, an orgy in which members of the Swedish Royal Opera Company let it all hang out. Whether you call it opera in the buff, opera boff, or opera buff. Up a booth. You're up a a booth. A rare moment of pornographic hilarity. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sold. Oh, and Bruce Williamson in Playboy seems to agree. Wow. Okay. I'm going to look this up. Till sex do us part. Uh, Oh, the the Night Porter was just being released. There's a review of the Night Porter. Cabaret, a movie that I've never sat through. No, I, to, I, I will one day. I, 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 I will. I will. I will. What is this movie down to the left? Caesar, a foolish film. <laughs> Seen at that, FET. That's, that's the review. Uh, Rome Wants Another Caesar is the name of the movie. Shown at the New York Film Festival. Comes quite close to being a hysterically funny bad film. A movie of such ridiculous pretensions that it restores a lofty reputation to Philistinism. Hmm. Wow. Never heard of it. Rome wants another Caesar. Okay. Cool. Uh, meanwhile... Freak you out sometimes. Just think about all the bad movies you're never going to see. Uh, does it freak me out? Yeah, I guess it does. I don't know about freak me out, but it is interesting to think about. It is when we look at these things. It's interesting to me how many movies don't survive. Yeah, disappeared from the public consciousness. Like this one, Peter Finch and Liv Ullman in the abdication. I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, there can't be a less interesting title for me, but, you know, I, it's just like, okay, the abdication, great. Directed by Anthony Harvey. Dunno. Well, I know what the abdication, I know what the abdication means because uh, I'm a big Crown fan. Ah. Well, I know what it means too, but it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that I need. I don't think I ever would have known it, what it was unless I'd seen the Crown because I didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. The Gambler. Yeah, was I just I was just reading something about um, people still angry about James Toback and how long he was allowed to be in the industry while being such a creep and and honestly, I'll tell you the truth. I don't know anybody. I didn't know any women, young women in New York who didn't. Like, this would be, like, a constant thing. Like, people I knew would come up to me and say, this guy, this weird guy just approached me on the street, and he told me he's a filmmaker, and he gave me his card, and he wants me to do it. It was always James Toback. I had no idea. Had yeah, no the clue. guy was just all over the fucking place. No idea. Yikes. Yeah, so anyway, he wrote The Gambler. Yes, he did. Was, I think, supposed to be sort of autobiographical. Well, I was thinking about him the other day because because of Paulie uh, when he died. Mm-hmm. And uh, he the first time I ever saw him was in a movie that James Toback had directed, this documentary. Called, about Mike Tyson? No, it was it was just about life. And he was talking to a bunch oh. of people. I think it was, oh. was it called The Big Blue Marble or something yeah, yeah. like that? Yeah, something like that. And And... Paulie tells this story about beating the crap out of some guy and, you know, how he, he beat him real bad. And I never forgot that. And then he showed up years later in The Sopranos. I was like, whoa, that's that guy. Oh, but the guy he beat up wasn't James Toback. No, James Toback was a friend of his. J- James Toback probably, you know, approached maybe during well, his know- gambling days he came into contact with him. Oh, oh you mean Paulie Paulie Walnuts. Polly Walnuts, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about Paul Servino. Oh, God, I forgot Paul Servino. Because I was going to say, Paul Servino, you know, uh, had a whole thing against uh, Weinstein. Because, well, oh, oh, is that true? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) But, I mean, he's like, you know, Mira Servino was uh, was caught up in the whole Weinstein thing. So it would have been surprising to me that that Servino was friends with Toback. Because similar fucking... Assholes. Right. No. No, no, no. Okay. Don't fuck wow. with Servino. So many assholes in Hollywood. Can't even keep yeah. track. Uh so many here, dead polys. Can't yeah, keep track. so many dead polys, that too. Yeah, it's a bad it is it's been a bad month for Tough guys. Uh, mafia actors. Um here's a double feature. Man on a swing. Man on a swing. Have you ever seen this movie? No. Oh, you need to watch it. Girl we, should, on a swing. we should do it. We should do Man on a Swing. It's fantastic. Oh, it's Frank Perry. Okay, I'm in. Yeah, dude, totally this in. movie is so fucking creepy and freaky. Um, and White Dawn is a Philip Kaufman movie that I don't wow. think either one of us have seen. It was one that I was gonna do when we were gonna. Well, I was gonna watch when we were doing Body Snatchers, but right. I didn't. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. Maybe you I, can. Uh, maybe you can talk to your guy, and he'll set up a double feature of the, those movies for you. I have put Man on a Swing on lists. In, uh, over the years for us to show at Cinematheque. It has never, it hasn't made it yet. 
But then here we are, this re-release of Born Losers, which was the first film in which the character of Billy Jack appeared. Right. Um, but I wonder, I'm surprised that, uh, I guess, did Tom Laughlin write Born Losers? Because I really, no, I don't know how he got the rights to, to have that character. Because the screenplay is by this James Lloyd, it's directed by this guy, T.C. Huh. Frank. I don't know how Tom Laughlin, you know, although he played him, I don't know how he inherited the rights to keep on. Well, you know, I say when certain actors own a role, <laughs> yeah. maybe that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. That's entertainment. That's a movie I loved and adored and watched more than once as a kid in theaters and on TV. Yeah, it's, it's like saying your favorite record is uh, Hot Rocks by the Stones. It's, no. No, I totally agree. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying I was into it at the time. Oh, yeah, Actually, you listen to Hot Rocks. Okay, that's okay. No, not Hot Rocks. No, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, and I tried to watch That's Entertainment not too long ago. I was like, I'm not watching this shit. <laughs> But right. on the other hand, Juggernaut is a, is a movie that I talked about on some other podcast once. Um, and that's a pretty terrific uh, disaster movie, Mad Bomber movie. Oh, Richard Lester. Richard Lester. It's, uh, it's, I'd watch it's, that. It's, the, it's sort of like a British version of um, the Poseidon Adventure. Mm. Uh, but, but you know it's sort of like in tone the sort of polar opposite like every 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 schlocky bit of Poseidon adventure is like ca- a counterpoint to the sort of much more uh fun like hard days night um oh. just uh huh. uh british um just sort of low key but clever and more realistic in a weird way anyway right. Um, but, but fun. It's not, it's not, it's not a downer at all. No. Um, good. Eleven Harrowhouse is a movie directed by my film professor, uh, Aram Avakian, who, um, directed this great movie with Stacey Keach called End of the Road. Mm. Eleven Harrowhouse has Charles Grodin and I've never made it through, but I should, I should watch it at some point. Yeah. Um, Uptown Saturday Night, uh, a movie that go. I remember a lot as a kid, uh, but I also think I tried to watch it recently. I was like, this isn't funny. <laughs> Everyone will enjoy this movie, which is strictly for fun. Mm, thank God. Thank God it's strictly for fun. Yeah. Uh, here's, is this what? This is a double feature Ooh, with Papillon, which of course was a huge movie. You know, Papillon, was Papillon for you one of these like event movies on TV? Like... Like everyone got excited when Papillon was on, uh, like, no. cause it was, maybe because it was so long, they would do it in two nights or something. Yeah, yeah. I remember everybody had seen it, but I don't, I don't think I've seen it. Mm. But it's playing with this other movie that I don't know what the fuck. I've never heard of this. James Coburn. Now, is the title of the movie? Great question. <laughs> Great question. I mean, because that'd be a great title. A fancy name for multiple murder. But that's not the title of the movie, is it? No. It's the Internecine Project. The Internecine Project. And that word, Internecine, I think I only know because was it one of, famously one of the Beach Boys was mumbling about how, even though they had all their own, their own Internecine conflicts in, within the band, they all managed to show up for induction to the rock and roll hall of fame or something like that mm, i know it from the crown <laughs> well <laughs> you know everything from the crown yeah. but 
I don't understand this ad. Like, why put the actual title? I don't know. Well, it, I gotta look that up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely the lesser of the double bill, right? Right. Although it seems like it's like the main, it's the new movie, and they stuck Papillon right. in there to get people into the theater. Poor Papillon. What is Busby Berkeley's masterpiece down there at the bottom? The gang's all the here. The gang's all here. Well, I don't know. With Alice Fay and Carmen Miranda. That might be wow. his masterpiece. You know they're, what? That they're showing it like it's the ago. one with Carmen Miranda's got the the banana hat. Ah. It's at the Playboy Theater. With other film and nostalgia playing with it. Everyone knows Gold Diggers of 1933 is his masterpiece. That is great. So here's another double feature. Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That must be, a, yeah, it's a re-release. Butch and the Kid are mm-hmm. back. But the second feature is 99 and 44 100% dead. Everyone is dying to meet Harry Crown. Do we, should we know the name Harry Crown? Is that a Michael It Kane sounds. Or something? Is it it one sounds of those? very familiar, but, I mean, who is that? It looks like Richard Kyle. <laughs> or it could be Richard Harris. Uh, or why do I think it's Michael Caine? Although it doesn't look like Michael Caine. It doesn't Kane. look like Michael Caine. Let me see if I can. I can't pull up a thing. I'll investigate. Somebody will, somebody will yell at me and say, no, 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 no. Great. So 2001 at the Ziegfeld. That's nice. That's a fun time. Ooh. Full 70 millimeter. Fellini's Amarcord, which seemed to play from 1970 to 1980, even if it wasn't made until 70-something. <laughs> right. uh, Dr. Zhivago, a, ne- a movie I've never been able to sit through. How about you? Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, you into it? Uh, yeah, I saw it. Finally saw it in a theater a few years ago at the uh, one of the colleges here. And it was snowing outside. It was perfect. It was actually a perfect way to go. Oh, that sounds great. I mean, I, it's not that I don't want to see it. It's just, I don't know. I haven't bumped into it in a theater. And it's the kind of thing, if I put it on TV, I just get distracted and say, oh, I'll catch up to this again some other time. Yeah. Uh, I find this poster for Taking a Pelham 123 pretty goddamn good. I mean, other than the tagline of everyone read it, now you can live it, which I think is dumb. But I like this top part where it says, the, it's, a, it's a picture of just everyone sitting on the subway car. As you're looking at them through the window. Yes. You're looking at them through like the rear window. And they're kind of, some of them are looking, seem to be looking back at you, or at least this one guy. Mm. Who is he one of the hijackers? I don't know who that is. He looks like a Muppet or something. He looks like what, he looks like, what's his name? The saxophonist? No, he he looks like the guy from um, Do the Right Thing, uh, Turturro's brother. Oh, Ebersole? Is and, that and, his name? And no, and he's also isn't he also in um isn't he also in Stranger Than Paradise? Yeah. I think his last name is Ebersol for some really? reason. Really? I don't think you're right about that. Maybe. Know. But anyway, it says the most spectacular hijack ever attempted one second before it happened. And I think that's funny. That like you're looking at it's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Oh then they then they gild the lily with which ones are the hijackers? Which ones will die? Which one is the undercover cop? Which ones will live through the most spectacular hijack ever attempted? Gotta love that gilding of the lily. Yeah. We're showing a movie called The Gilded Lily. Ah, Richard Edson. Ah, Edson. Never yeah. saw. 
You're thinking of Christine Ebersol from Second Life. I was Life. thinking of uh, Ed Ebersol. Oh. Richard Edson. Love Richard Edson. Oh, yeah. Great. Are those his top two films Come on, there? Pino. You always tell me what to do, Pino. Man, I was thinking about Do the Right Thing the other day, and that is such a great movie. You know how you're talking about Raging Bull and great scene after great scene? There's a lot of great scenes in Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Uh, and you want to talk about a movie that's willing to talk about race, that scene between uh, Spike Lee and John Turturro, one of the best yeah, I watched it not too long ago with my kids, and it, it held up spectacularly. Yeah. Pretty good stuff. Uh, and made me all the more annoyed at whatever Scott, Spike Lee's been doing for the last, I don't know what. I don't know. That, uh... Chi- Chirac? No. Well, I like Chirac, actually. It's, you it's, do? It's crazy <laughs> enough to work. I like it, uh... Hey, oh. man, you can't talk about Chirac. Only us can talk about Chirac. Oh, okay. But uh, uh, Black Klansman, that movie is great. Black Klansman is great, but Black Klansman is that sort of exception in the middle of a bunch of shit that I'm like, this is really just unwatchable. Yeah, well, like, I wanted gonna, to walk out. I'm not going to argue with you about Defy Bloods. All right, well, now we've gone over the 144, but I'll, 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 I'll trim this up. All right, sounds good. All right, man. All right. Thanks for watching uh, the movie again. Always my pleasure to watch that movie. I'm gonna watch it again right now. Are you? Maybe. Uh-huh.